thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this uh, Bible study. It's a continuation of our uh, uh, study of the book of Revelation. And tonight we're going to continue uh, where we left off. And that is um, in chapter 12. If you recall from the couple of uh, uh, previous talks we've done, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the woman closed with the sun. In one talk, we discussed how that a woman is the Blessed Virgin Mary, first and foremost, and that the relationship between Mary and the Church, that is Mary as symbol of the Church, or Mary as embodiment of the Church, allows us also to say that by extension, this woman is the church, particularly when we deal with the passage that uh, talks about the woman on earth and uh, the woman being persecuted by the devil, as we are going to talk about today. In the following, uh, uh, in the previous talk, we spent time discussing the role of the woman and her protection of life, and the importance that it, that has for us all. We've stated that. At the foot of the cross, when Jesus commissioned Mary with the care of John, and that is each and every one of us through John, he didn't do it as an afterthought. It wasn't something that came to him at the very last moment. It was effectively the culmination of his passion and the passion of his mother. We should never forget that at the cross, there wasn't one person suffering, there were two. Two innocent were suffering, Christ and his mother. And that the, the suffering of his mother was truly the pain of childbirth. And that when Jesus told Mary, woman, behold your son, he was effectively telling her, your pain of childbirth has come to an end. Behold, you have a boy. So that the cross and the death of Jesus on the cross enables Mary to be fruitful, to carry life, to bring forth life in ways that were unimagined. The only precursor to that is Abraham. 
Abraham had no children, he was childless, and God told him, you will be the father of multitudes. And how did Abraham become the father of multitudes? When did he become that? Precisely when he offered his son for sacrifice. It was the pain of child giving or the pain of carrying forth all these children that Abraham bore when he offered his son Isaac. And as a result of this, he became fruitful. He became the father of multitudes. But the, but that which Abraham became symbolically, Mary became effectively. That is the difference between them. And the church, in a sense, is the presence of Mary on earth. It is the presence of Jesus on earth, but it is also the presence of Mary on earth. Through the church, Mary is giving birth to us all. That is the profound, the profound revelation of this book. I mentioned to you before that the, the ancients did not write in a linear fashion where you go to the end of the book to find out what happened. If you want to find out what happened, you go to the middle of the book. It is written as a mountain. You go up and then you go back down. And we are right now smack in the middle of this book. This is the revelation. It is that woman clothed with the sun and all that follows. It is the fruitfulness of that woman that is now capable to bring forth life because and through the death and resurrection of our Lord on the cross. Effectively, what we are presented with is a second creation. A second creation. We've alluded to that last time. Eve became fruitful after the fall, after they were pushed out of the garden, Adam knew his wife, and then he called her the mother of the living. Mary became fruitful without falling, but after the glorious resurrection of her son. She now assumes the title mother of the church. That is the profound intuition or the profound revelation that St. John received from our Lord. And so beginning with verse 3, And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. And another portent appeared in heaven. Notice that St. John starts by saying, and a great portent appeared in heaven. And now he says, and another portent. He doesn't say, and another 
a second great portent. Right? So greatness is not measured by size or by might. It is measured by holiness. And another portent appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Later on, St. John will disclose to us the identity of this dragon, that is, the devil. Satan, the first of the angels that fell. Um, the image of the dragon is present throughout Scripture. You'll find it in the Psalms, where we read that God slew the dragon, and it is mostly in relationship to Egypt. Um, it was also called Leviathan. Now, the Leviathan is the crocodile. And so all these types of animal imageries associated with the crocodile, which, as you know, was, and probably still is, well, maybe still is, I don't know, bountiful in the Nile. And that association between Egypt and that animal is referred often to, uh, to the dragon. The fact that the dragon is red has to do with a number of, um, a number of uh, ideas. The first being that red, of course, is associated with blood. And we find the dragon being identified or being designated as red in many uh, mythologies. So it isn't only the uh, Jews who saw or thought of the dragon as red, but you find it also among the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. But there may also be a second, perhaps a more direct reference to red. If you recall that Edom... Edom means literally red. And that Herod was an Edomite. And furthermore, Herod had six children, no, four children and two great uh, grandchildren who reigned. So the Herodian, the Herodian uh, dynasty was composed of seven rulers. Herod the Great, Herod the, um, now Herod the Great, then um, uh, there was Philip the First, Philip the Second, there was Herod Antipas, Herod, um, I was going to say Archelaus, I believe it's Archelaus, and then there was Antipas the First and the Second. Those are the seven kings in the dynasty of Herod. Now, Herod, if you recall, was the king who tried to kill the baby Jesus. He's the king who killed the innocent children. He murdered one of his wives. I don't know if it's one or two. At least one. He murdered three of his children. Um, he essentially was a murderer. His hands were seeped in blood. Herod Antipas was the one who uh, sat in judgment before when 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 Saint Paul was presented to him. Um, the son of Herod the Great was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. So blood flows throughout the entire Herodian dynasty. Now, who supported the Herodians? Who allowed them to reign? 
Rome. And there are various ways of counting the number of Caesars that reigned from the birth of Christ to 70 AD. But my most count, you can come up with 10. 10 Caesars. Right? Seven heads, 10, ten diadems. Uh, 10 horns, I'm sorry, on every head. So the horns are the sign of power, the source of power, and you have seven heads. So politically, it is possible <clears throat> that St. John is alluding to the Herodian dynasty as it was supported by Rome. So this creature has a political aspect. I've already told you that you cannot really separate politics from religion the way uh, people in this country think of it. Sort of, politics has to be separate from religion. Intrinsically, it's never separate. I understand that you don't want to have a government labeled under a specific religion, but it doesn't mean that the political sphere is outside the influence of the supernatural. That would be naive at best, and blind at worst. Satan always works through political means. That's a given. And we need to read the signs of the times through political events. That is why Catholics cannot disengage themselves from politics. And Catholics can never have a cynical attitude towards politics, because oftentimes politics expresses God's will. And when we have bad politician, bad politicians, when we have corrupt politicians, it's a sign of the time. It's a call to repentance. Because in religion as in politics, we get, we get the men and women we deserve. We get the priests we deserve, and we get the politicians we deserve. It is all too easy for us to sit and uh, proclaim our righteousness by decrying the decadence of politicians. But woe to us if our righteousness is fake. We have to be very careful and we cannot just pull away. We have to be engaged politically. It's, uh, it, it is right here. It's in the book of Revelation. It is through the entire uh, Bible. Politics is an important aspect of our life and we cannot ignore it. The seven diadems, the diadems of course are a sign of glory, a sign of power. But in this case they're fake. So, Satan is always trying to replicate, trying to recreate what God has done. And he's trying to set himself in, in lieu of God. He wants us to think of him as God. And he doesn't want us to think of him as God because he wants us to adore him. And thereby he derives pleasure out of it. We tend to think of it that he really wants us to adore him because he's vain. He's a star. No. That would be that would be too good if this was the case. 
Satan has only one desire, our utter and complete destruction. He despises us. Just as no man would think of deriving any pleasure by having worms offer him worship, so it is that Satan has absolutely no pleasure other than the pleasure of destruction with having humans, human, humankind worship him. He only desires our destruction. That's it. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, there are two ways in which we can understand these stars. The first, of course, as it relates to angels, because stars often refers to angelic beings. And there is one explanation of this passage that is very illuminating spiritually. I'm going to relate it to you, but I do not believe it is the primary meaning of the text. But it is definitely a good source of meditation. And that is, since the war between Michael and a dragon is, is noted here as coming after the woman giving birth. That is, the woman gives birth first, then the war arises between Michael and a dragon. That has led some commentators to think that what we see here is a vision inside the vision. That is, God is revealing to us something He had told the angels. And namely, He showed them what His plan was. To be born of a woman and therefore to raise humans to the same level of grace and glory as the angels. And when Satan saw that, he then rebelled. And following this rebellion, you had the primordial war between angels and demons, the war that took place before humankind was created. And that would explain why you have this chronology, or this... Uh, um, dechronology, if you will, since the birth of Christ seems to be related to us before the war between Michael and Satan, but we know that the angels fell before Adam and Eve were created. And so this problem is expressed, explained, as I just told you, by stating that John is seeing what God had revealed to the angels namely that he will be he will become a man he will create mankind he will become a man he will become a man out of a woman and that woman will be the queen of all and that is one satan said i will not serve meaning i will not serve you as a god man that is beneath me and i think there is a very good intuition about the relationship between Satan and Mary. It also explains why Satan went after Eve in the garden instead of going after Adam, because he understood or he misunderstood Eve to be the woman from whom the God-man would be born, and so he thought her downfall. And therefore there is, as I said, 
an exp- this explanation illuminates the relationship between the demons and uh, and us. But I do not believe this explanation to be the main point of this text. I think that the stars that are being pointed out here are not angels, but actually saints. And it expresses the persecution that the devil is going to uh, set about in order to bring down the church. So his attack, his, when he swept down those stars, a third of the stars of heaven, the indication is that partially the church will be materially or physically hurt. It is consistent with the message we got in the letters where Jesus does not promise us that he will protect us physically or materially, but he promises us that he will offer us the spiritual protection we need so that we may not be deceived and end up in hell. So the first thing that Satan does is to bring down those stars. Now, if you really think about it, and you think about it in the context of this discussion we had concerning the role of Mary, this will make sense. Because who are these stars? Who are these saints? They are effectively the, the children of the woman. And so his attack against the woman is also an attack against her children, as we shall, we shall see in verse 17 of this chapter. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And as I mentioned to you two lectures past, the most appropriate interpretation is to see this not as the birth of the baby Jesus, but rather as the birth, the glorious birth of Christ from the cross. That death has become a source of life. Where, when, where did Satan concentrate his attack? His most vicious attack was during the Passion. Not when Jesus was born, but during the Passion. And when Jesus was crucified, what did Satan think? I won. I did it. Right? I did it. But Jesus told Mary, Behold your son. Behold your son. At the foot of the cross, Mary became the spiritual mother of John. She gave birth to John at the foot of the cross. And through her suffering, by the will of Christ, she gave birth to the risen Christ. He is, spiritually now, her son, even more so than he was physically. That's why we call Mary Theotokos, the mother of God. It isn't just because she brought forth Jesus as a baby, but it is also because she assumes her maternal role after the resurrection. In other words, her motherhood did not end when Jesus died on the cross. It began. Up to that point, she was mother of Jesus biologically. She gave him birth. 
which is great. But the spiritual motherhood that she received because of her participation with his suffering at the foot of the cross is far greater. Because physically, Mary could bring forth only Jesus. Spiritually, she can bring forth all of us. You understand? You see, here's the fundamental intuition that has guided me throughout the entire book. In order, I mean, the key to understand the book of Revelation in a consistent, cohesive manner, in a way that is coherent, where you're not breaking pieces apart and explaining the details and not connecting them together, requires us to properly understand the role of Mary in salvation history. You can't explain this book without Mary. And you certainly cannot explain it without the church and without the liturgy. Those elements are foundational, fundamental, if you, were to under, if you want to understand the book of Revelation in a way that makes sense, that is consistent, and is not confusing. One who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. When was Jesus to rule the nations with a rod of iron? Precisely after his resurrection. Right. That's when the rain was given him, and therefore her child was caught up to God and to his throne. After the resurrection, Christ went to heaven. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for 1,260 days. It's a telescopic uh, statement that... that summarizes a number of events that have taken place after the resurrection. What happened after Jesus arose from the dead and went up to heaven? As far as the life of the church is concerned. Persecutions begun. Right? You think that people saw him risen, people witnessed to his rising of the dead, and therefore everybody should be converted. It's exactly the opposite that happened. The attack intensifies. And then the persecution begins. Now, the fled into the wilderness, fleeing into the wilderness, is important on many levels. The first, of course, is a reference to Exodus. A reference to Exodus. Um, I've told you before that there is a relationship between a dragon, the Leviathan, and Egypt. And as you know, the Egyptians... Uh, when when, Isra- when when the, the Egyptians persecuted Israel by enslaving them, and then they fl- they they left Egypt and went into the wilderness. So the wilderness is always a place of refuge. The wilderness by itself is not a place of refuge. It is the invisible or visible presence of God in the wilderness that makes it a place of refuge. The wilderness by itself is not a refuge. But it is the presence of God in the wilderness that makes it a refuge. Essentially, God wants to protect His people and He brings them to this 
paradox, which is the wilderness. On the one hand, the wilderness is refuge because God protects his people. On the other hand, the wilderness is an evil place. You have scorpions, you have serpents, you have heat, you have a an environment that is hostile to life. And it is precisely in this environment that is hostile to life that God brings his people to nourish them, to nourish them. It's a paradox, but it's an important one. God wants us to understand that it isn't us that can nourish ourselves. Nor is it us who can decide exactly where we should be nourished. It is up to Him. At the same time, He doesn't want us to live with an idyllic image of that place where He wants us to be nourished. There is a tendency among Christians and among non-Christians to create ghettos. Let's go live in a ghetto where we have only people like ourselves and then we'll create the ideal society and we'll shut the world out. That is not the wilderness. The wilderness is a dangerous place. The wilderness is a risky place. The wilderness is full of serpents and scorpions and bitter water and a bunch of other things that can kill you. The wilderness is not a place where you can find good food. The wilderness is not a place where you can plant. It isn't this pastoral, ideal heaven where God is going to nourish us. Right? The wilderness is San Diego. And yet it is in this wilderness that God, because of His presence, because of His presence, can nourish His people. Now, the emphasis here is on nourishment. Isn't that odd? The statement in this, uh, in this verse says that where she has, she fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which to be nourished. In which to be nourished. Not a place in which to live safely. In a place to be nourished for 42 months. That's the period of uh, 1,260 days. We've seen this period before. Three and a half years. 42 months. The 42 months are an allusion to the 42 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, or alternatively, the 42 um, steps that required that were required for the whole camp to move. Essentially, it is a sign of the presence of Israel in in the wilderness during Exodus. You, you, you need to see the element of, this element of, of Exodus here. Israel left Egypt and went into the wilderness in order to reach the promised land. The woman leaves Egypt or runs away from Egypt, the dragon, the devil, into the wilderness. What is not yet said is the goal. And that is in order to reach the promised land. And so just as in the wilderness, 
God nourished his people with the manna, right? And that's where only the liturgy and the Catholic understanding of the text gives it its full meaning. So it is with us today that as we live in this wilderness, God nourishes us with the Eucharist. Hmm? With the Eucharist. Hence, the liturgical aspect of this book. The woman is Mary, and by extension, the woman is the church. You might say, Mary need, does not need to be nourished. Uh, that is not the case, because we know that in heaven, the children of God are invited to the table of their father. So that nourishment never ceases. But also, this gives us a very good idea about the solidarity that Mary has with our sufferings and with our pain and with our sorrows and with our effort to live a godly life in this wilderness. She is the mother of mercy and by her presence in the church, she is mothering us all. She is taking care of us all. We will always be in the wilderness. Because if ever we were to step out of the wilderness, what will happen to us is that we will fall in love with this temporal life. When you are in the wilderness, you are not going to say to yourself, Wow, look at that patch of the desert where these three scorpions are. That's a great place to build a condo. That thought will not come to mind. When you're in the wilderness, you'll never say, Wow, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to be part of my, of my cruise. The tendency that we have, the temptation that we have, that we all have, is to belong. To be part of that world out there. And most often than not, we are, we do not really know the depth of that yearning in our heart. We don't necessarily acknowledge it in its full reality. And that is often one of the source of our inability to progress in our spiritual life. Right? We're, we're, we're stuck in that revolving door. Well, once, you know, one minute we're in the church and one minute we're outside. And we're back in the church and we're back outside. And we keep on doing this. We keep on doing this. St. Paul expressed this very nicely when he says, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. Right? Well, that's St. Paul. And St. Paul expresses it. And we are afflicted with the same problem. We're in good company. But effectively, it is because we are in the wilderness. We're trying to pull away from those good things that we are, we are yearning for. And it's this constant battle that makes us Christian. It's not our success. It's the battle. It's the faithfulness, faith, faithfulness to this battle that makes us Christian. Are we going to fall? Yes. It's the wilderness. 
But because of the constant presence of God in that wilderness, paradoxically, that which would bring about our death will bring about our life. Now, if you were to look at somebody who lived in the wilderness for 30 years of his life, or 30 years of her life, you would not see a saint, because these people would be probably dirty and dusty, and um, their clothes would not be according to the latest fashion. They would not look fashionable. And so it is important to keep that in mind, that for, for, for the majority of us, God's sanctity is hidden. It is not revealed. That is part of being in the wilderness too. It is kept for us safely in heaven. So don't be discouraged if, if you feel or think that you're not good enough. That you don't love God good enough, enough, or you're not, you're not doing everything you should be doing, or that you're not making progress, or that your, your life is not what it needs to be. Don't take that as a sign of discouragement. Take, take that as a sign of rejoicing. And that is hard, I'll admit. It's not easy. But try to take it as a sign of rejoicing. Because it is only when we fail that we succeed. It is only in our greatest failures that we have our greatest success. Because then we are on the way to the cross. We are truly in the wilderness. It is the way of Christ. And if you know people who are successful in all their ways, and they're getting everything they want, especially material things, but they are not close to Christ and to His mother, you should feel a deep pity for them. A deep pity. Because God knows that He cannot give them the glory of heaven. So, out of His fatherly love, He gives them the glory of this world because that's all they're going to get. That's how we have to think. Thing, things are seldom what they seem to be. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Why is this battle starting now? Why is it that it didn't start before? The angels had always wanted to fight the devil. It isn't that they never had the desire. They always wanted to fight the devil. Now let's understand heaven first. War arose in heaven. What heaven are we talking about here? What heaven are we talking about? Any suggestions? Church? Earth? It is this universe. This physical universe. The heaven is this universe, and it is in heaven because, why is it in heaven? Because heaven is the location of power. Right? The gods are in heaven among the pagans. Right? The stars are in heaven. That which is powerful is on high. Right? So it is a power struggle. 
It is a power struggle between Michael, the archangel Michael and his angels, and the devil and his angels. Okay? Materially, you need to understand that Satan was probably a cherubim, probably a cherubim, possibly a seraphim, part of the highest two choirs of angels. Michael, on the other hand, is an archangel, which is the, um, let's see, the, the eighth choir. The, low, the lowliest one was angels, right? So, Satan is by far superior to Michael in all ways, according to the natural order of things. Michael has no, doesn't have the physical power intrinsically to defeat Satan. But the nourishment does not extend only to humans. It extends to angels. What do I mean by that? Of course, the angels cannot receive the Eucharist. We only can do that. What I mean by this is that precisely it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the motherhood of Mary that enable the angels to do what they could not do before. It is the power of the cross that gives the good angels the upper hand. So always remember that. If you know of children or people who are afraid of demons, afraid of the dark, I've always told you that. Anyone who is afraid of the dark in an unnatural way, cannot stand to be in the dark, has to have light in his bedroom to go to sleep. That person is under the influence of the devil. Okay? The reason is simple. Most people who end up in a situation like this have watched some horror movie when they were younger, when they were older, when they should not have watched it. And what people don't understand, what they do not understand, unfortunately, is that Imagination being the faculty, the most angelic faculty in a human being, it is through that faculty that angels speak to us. And when we watch horror movies, we are effectively writing a carte blanche for the devil to use these images in our mind and empower them to take hold on us. And they do. And the result, we cannot sleep in the dark. You have to fight that. You have to fight that. And you have, if you have children, young children especially, you teach them to sleep in complete darkness. My kids complain if there is a little bit of light seeping under the door. It's not dark enough for them. And you can only do that, especially for when their children are young, well, first of all, please do not commit the, I'm going to be blunt here, do not commit the stupidity of allowing children to watch horror movies. Alright, please, don't do that. It is stupid, in the proper sense of the word. It'd be like taking a spiritual gun and shooting your kid with it. Explain to your children what is going on. Explain to them 
the, that other dimension. And you know what? Kids will understand it very quickly. You don't have to elaborate, but you have to explain it. And then help them be very devoted to, your, to their garden angel. And remind them that whether there's electric light or not, their guardian angel, who is standing by their side, shines like the sun. In full power. Help form the imagination. The imagination must be properly formed by directing your children to that which is beautiful and wholesome and noble. That which elevates the soul to God. The formation of the imagination is essential in a proper Catholic formation. Without it, good luck. I can tell, more often than not, the type of imagination people have by observing the way they dress. And among women, by their makeup. Because a properly formed imagination that is directed to that which is beautiful and noble would conform the face to the same. And an improperly formed imagination that is targeted to that which is impure conform the face to the same. And so you can tell by looking at someone for their face become the mirror of their imagination. It's not that difficult to read. Watch movies. Watch TV programs. And you will see, if you look at it from the imagination standpoint, you will see how it is directed to that which is... to that which debase man. And the last thing I'll tell you, beware of humor. Beware of humor. Humor is a very powerful acid. It penetrates with great power. If the humor is not wholesome and you don't resist it, you're allowing your imagination to be deformed by the message that that the humor is carrying. All those things are very important for a proper Christian formation and cannot be ignored. So it is precisely the liturgy of the church, it is the fact that we are fed, it is the fact that Christ died on the cross, and that we have now the Eucharist, that allows the fight to occur between Michael and the angel, and the devil, and and then fight against them. And what do they do? They throw the devil down. What does that mean? The devil is what? He has two titles, devil and Satan. What are those? Deceiver and adversary. Fundamentally, the devil devil is a slanderer and a deceiver. To slander is to publicly declare something about someone which is not true. That's a slander. And the devil is constantly doing that with the church. The devil is constantly slandering the church. How does he do it? Through political powers. Communism was one. And through humor, and through these days' novels. What is the Da Vinci Code is not a slander against the church. Right? That was the position that he occupied in heaven, and it was across the entire world. He was able to obstruct the truth 
Why? Because men had fallen. Adam and Eve committed original sin. Therefore, he had that control. He could obstruct the truth across the entire globe. And if you recall our conversation from Our Lady of the, uh, Guadalupe, what was going on among the Aztec and the Incas, and then you extend that to all the uh, ancient uh, civilizations, most of them, that is a direct result of Satan obscuring the truth. That was no longer possible. By throwing him down to earth, effectively they broke his power. No longer could Satan slander the world the way he did it before. Even today, he is forced to use Christian concepts. Because the, cons- conscious, the consciousness of the whole world has been Christianized. People think in Christian terms even though they don't recognize it, but the charity, taking care of the poor, the marginalized, uh, thinking about those who are poor in Africa or elsewhere, uh, people who, are, who uh, resist when uh, during a war civilians are killed, and the, pro- uh, the protest against these events. All those movements who are performed by people who are not necessarily Christian stem from a Christian conscience. The devil would much rather have us without any conscience. We're killing each other, would not provoke any thought. They're the enemy, and we're right, and we can destroy all of them, and enslave all of them. How come we got rid of slavery? How come we got rid of so many of these injustices, if it wasn't for that war? If it wasn't for the fact that he was thrown down from heaven, precisely because, what? The woman... And her children are nourished. Are nourished. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who met Jesus. And Jesus told her it is not right to give the food of the children to the dogs. And her answer was was what? Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat from the scraps that fall from the table of the children. If you do not nourish the children, the world will starve. If you remove the table, if you remove the tabernacles, if you remove the church and the liturgy and the Eucharist, you've removed the main obstacle that prevents Satan from deceiving the whole world. You understand? And that is why the liturgy and the church are formative of all political movements. History is made in the church. This is how things appear from an angelic perspective. And we need to learn to see it this way, or rather relearn that truth. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. 
This is a confirmation of what we saw in chapter 11, where we heard that when the seventh trumpet is blown, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God. And now we hear the confirmation. It has happened. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God. When? When Satan was thrown down from heaven. He was dethroned. He no longer has the power he had before. It's taken away from him. And how is it taken away from him? Those voices in heaven are the voice of the church triumphant. Angels and human alike are singing the song. All of them, the whole community of the saints, is singing the song, making this proclamation that indeed the kingdom of God has arrived. And how, how was this done? How was it... How did this come about? They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb, which is an allusion to the Eucharist, and the word of their testimony. Right? And testimony, as you know, is martyria in the Greek, a martyr. So they stood fast all the way until the shedding of their own blood. And it is this action, it is the suffering of the Christians, it is the suffering of the Catholics who are faithful to the magisterium that conquer Satan and open up the ways of conversion of the whole world. We're not going to solve the problems of the world until we become true Catholics. And that is why this attack against the church is so pernicious, because it's going at the core, if you want, at the nuclear reactor that is powering the entire ship. Without that reactor, you can't steer the ship anywhere. The ship being the world, and this reactor being the church. So we have a whole process of rebuilding th everything inside out, from within. Rejoice then, O heaven, and you that dwell therein, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So, heaven can rejoice, but earth and sea cannot. In this specific instance, the joining of earth and sea means that the, the, those who do not rejoice are not simply the unbelievers, but it is everyone. Everyone. The Bringing Satan down does not mean he is now powerless. It merely means that he cannot deceive as he used to. It doesn't mean he cannot inflict other types of pain, material pain. He cannot cause destruction or that he cannot bring about or influence people to, 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 to uh, persecute the church. He can, he can still do all these things. But he can no longer hide the truth the way he did it before. He knows that his time is short. Most likely this is a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which put an end to the persecution that the Christians were suffering under the Jewish authority, but also to the conversion of Constantine, which effectively turned Satan's kingdom, the Roman Empire, upside down. He was now dethroned on earth. Right? 
I don't think this is this was a reference to the end of the of of the world. Okay? Nothing in this book suggests the end of the world being the principal uh, topic. It is a secondary topic, not a principal one. And when a dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to for a time and times and half a time. So, now that Satan has been thrown down, he directs his wrath against the church, against the woman, Mary, and the church. And we have now a repetition where we heard before, which is that the woman was given the wings of the great eagle. The wings of the great eagle, in this context, is a reference to Old Testament um, uh, allusions where God carried Israel on eagle, eagle, eagle's wings. Okay? So the wings of the great eagle are effectively God's protection that carried the woman, meaning the whole church, to this wilderness for three and a half years. So, seemingly, what is the response? The devil attacks. What do we do? We run away. We run. Okay. By the way, this is a principle in a moral life as well. When a devil attacks, you run. Resist the devil by running. Isn't that weird? You resist the devil by running away. And you run to whom? To your mother. Okay? To your mother. So, when you're tempted, when you're tempted by the devil to do something, all that you have to say is, I'll do it, but I have to ask permission from mom. <laughs> That's it. And if he badgers you, simply say, go talk to my mom. That's all you have to say. Even those words, just as simple as they are, will put him to flight. And if you add, go talk to Our Lady, or go talk to Mary, Most Virgin, Most Holy, Mother of God, he's gone. He cannot abide these words. Know how to fight. You fight by fleeing. That's how you resist him. Because he would love a one-to-one. One -one. It'd be like an elephant fighting an ant. And an ant saying, okay, bring it on, bring it on. <laughs> Alright? And if there's any doubt in anybody's mind, we're the ant. He's the elephant. Okay? The serpent poured poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Now, this of course is an image. It is not a physical reality. Satan is not going to try to kill us by a flood, by opening his mouth. He doesn't have a mouth to begin with. He's a spirit. And then spewing water out of it. So we have to understand the image behind it by making reference to the Old Testament. Right? The first is this, and this is a very important intuition. God, God punished the world with a flood. You remember that? That tells us something about the psychology of Satan. In the book of Job, in the first chapter, he, is, he comes before God, and he effectively tells God, God asks him, have you seen my servant Job? 
And Satan replies, yes, I have seen him. But effectively he says, but if you were to give him less money, he will turn against you. Basically saying, this is a slander. He's saying, you know, he's just there because of the money, because of the goods you're giving him. And oh, by the way, God, you're you're missing a couple of screws because you don't know that, but I know that. Evil people, people inclined to evil, always, always will give you the impression that they know more than you do. They always come with that, with that, if you have a tendency to say, I know that, somebody says something to you, oh yeah, I know that. Not a good sign. Not a good sign at all. It says something very profound about your spiritual makeup. Okay? That's what the devil was saying. I know, you don't. Saying that to God. But in his mind, we deserve punishment. We had sinned, and he's essentially saying to God, you didn't keep your side of the bargain, because they sinned, they committed a mortal sin, all of the race, they all condemned, how come you are protecting some of them, and calling them righteous? On what basis? That is not just. And it would seem that he had an argument there, because effectively, why did God in the Old Testament protect someone like Job, or Moses, or David? Or, they have all sinned. Every one of us have in us or, original sin. Of course, his accusation does not, hold, does not hold water, because that misery came about when he tempted Adam and Eve. So it's because of him. So it's like, Somebody who commits a murder or inspires someone else to commit a murder and accuses the parents of that kid for not educating this kid properly. Talk about evil. So in his mind, everybody deserves to die and so everybody should be killed in a flood. So he thinks he's applying justice. That's what you deserve. You don't deserve to live. You deserve death. I'm going to bring it about. Because you have no right to live. That's what he does in his great wrath. The serpent poured water. Yeah, we've said that. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now, when Pharaoh and his soldiers drowned in the Red Sea, In Exodus, Moses, in his song, extolling God, said about them that the earth opened up and swallowed them. And likewise, when three men contested Moses and rebelled against him, the earth opened up and swallowed them and all their children. So in both cases, the notion of the earth opening up and swallowing them is an indication of God's supernatural protection. That God will use nature, God will use material means to protect His church in ways unforeseen to us. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. Then the dragon was angry with the woman. The dragon was angry with the woman because the woman defeated him. 
because the woman is the cause of his defeat. The, the dragon is angry with Mary, he's angry with the woman, and by extension, he's angry with every woman, because every woman is created in the image of Mary. And so he does everything he can to deform that image in women, as we alluded to last week. Last, last week, in the way they dress, in the way they talk, in their priorities, what is important to them, what is not, in the way they look, they look at life. Um, in, in the 20th century, there's been a total, more or less, total of about 180 million people who died because of wars and violent deaths. From 1920 till today, there is an estimated 524 million abortions. The number of abortions probably dwarf the deaths from all the wars in the history of humanity. Just think about that. Think about that and what it means. He's angry with a woman. Yeah. And so, his goal is to turn every woman into an anti-Mary. And the way he does it is through pride. Through pride. Notice, to make war on the rest of her offspring. On her offspring. It's the life-giving power of Mary that he despises most. She is mother of God and mother of the living. And all her offspring, all the those who bear testimony to Jesus and keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus are the children of Mary. And this is why Vatican II could say what he said about the fact that those who are not formally inscribed in the Catholic Church can and do find salvation. Because if they keep the commandments of God, and bear testimony to Jesus, they are children of Mary. Th- this here, this, these two chapters are, f- are very important to us because they explain, they kind of lift the veil and show us what is happening behind the scene. Wars and famine and anxiety and problems and all those material things that we are going through are part of a much larger canvas that involve demons and angels, and can only be understood properly and acted upon properly when we bring in the Church, Mary, and Eucharist. Without these things, the texts remain obscure. With them, we have something we can... that allow us to do something. We can do something about this whole thing. We no longer feel powerless. All that we have to do is focus, each one of us, first and foremost, on ourselves. Learn the commandments of God. Learn the commandments of the church. Live a Christian life. Live a holy life. And then through our prayers and sacrifice, God will do the rest. No longer can we think of our lives as meaningless. As unimportant. We have a duty. We have a duty to understand and appreciate the gift of life that God gave each one of us by bringing us into His church. And we should not be avaricious 
We should not say to God, what you've given me is not good enough. Instead, we should conform ourselves to our exemplar, our model, Mary, most holy, and live like her. And in doing so, we participate in the evangelization of the whole world. Remember, evangelization happens first and foremost through sacrifice. Through prayers, and then God will do the rest. Let nothing worry you. Let nothing cause anxiety in your heart. None of the events out there should cause you to be anxious. Yeah, they should bring sadness in your heart. They should bring maybe a question. Lord, I don't understand. Yeah. But it should not bring anxiety. For you are children of God. And this life is fleeting. It passes away so quickly. And eternity awaits you. And we will all, God willing, enjoy it in the justice of God and in the mercy of His Son. God bless you. Questions. Uh, what did you mean by we beware of humor? Uh, what I meant was of well, what I did what I did not mean to say is that we should not have any humor. Of course, that would be absurd. What I meant was that humor is typically used to carry a message, and we cannot laugh before we have examined that message because humor can be used to attack the faith, can be used to attack the church, can be used to attack the uh, role of fathers, the role of mothers, and therefore we must resist it in those situations because it is effectively in humor that is carrying messages which are not uh, in harmony with our faith and our belief and certainly not in harmony with... Um, you know, the morality. So therefore, we have to be very careful and not laugh uh, without um, first having the time to examine the content of uh, the humorous message. That's what I basically meant. Yes, next question. How does the devil insert thoughts in our heads? Uh, and that is in relationship to being scared of darkness. Well, um, think of it this way. If you were to see, uh, let, let's say you were able to bring someone from the 16th century to uh, today, and if he'd seen me pick up my cell phone, put it to my ear, and say hello, what would this person think? He might think I'm crazy, or he might think I'm uh, doing something absolutely extraordinary, because obviously I'm being able to uh, talk to someone who is not here and is able to listen to me. So therefore, in a sense, I'm being able to insert thoughts into the head of somebody who is not present. More generally, how do we communicate? I say something, you hear it. Well, when you hear it, it's, it had entered into your thoughts, into your mind, and it's become a thought. Now, we use, you know, vocal cords and wavelength to communicate, but let's not forget that we are also spiritual beings. We have a soul, and therefore, in that spiritual dimension, it is entirely possible for spiritual beings to communicate with us. Uh, typically, people don't have problems with angels communicating among themselves, but they have a problem, or they wonder how can it be that an angel can communicate with a human being. Well, remember, both of them have, have a compatible spiritual element, and that's why it's possible for angels, uh, angelic beings, whether demonic or uh, or uh, or good angels, to effectively 
communicate with us by our thoughts, and hence we have to examine our thoughts before we uh, accept them as ours, as ours, because some may not be, some may be suggestions or temptations that need to be rejected. Next question. Uh, why did Michael, not a higher angel, lead the attack on the devil? Why did basically Michael is called the, why is Michael called the prince of uh, angels? Well, um, we would do well to recall that it was a lowly maid, maiden from Nazareth, a young girl, 16 years old, who, who became the queen of heaven and earth. So therefore, even though uh, Michael, in the natural order, belongs to the eighth choir of angels, in a supernatural order, his humility had made him the prince of angels, just as the humility of Our Lady made her the queen of heaven and earth. Um, yes, can the woman in tonight's talk be Eve? We are all her children. Uh, no, the woman in tonight's talk, uh, that is, the woman close to the sun, cannot be Eve, uh, because that uh, this particular woman is the woman who gives birth to the one who is going to rule the world with a rod of iron, and that is clearly not Eve, but it's Mary. Uh, let's also recall that we are indeed uh, the children of Eve in a natural order, but in a supernatural order, which is the church, we are the children of Mary. Yes, uh, last question. Was Mary ever be tempt, was Mary ever tempted by the devil? Was Mary ever tempted by the devil? Well, think of it this way. If you had two cities, uh, which are bearing the brunt of an attacker, and one city falls and the other doesn't, the other holds and is able to repel the, that attacker, which of those two cities felt the full brunt, the full power of the attacking force? Yeah, obviously it is the second city, because it was able to resist. Hence, the attacking force put all its strength in trying to break it, but it wasn't able to succeed. Now, that attacking force is a devil, and its strength is in tempting us. We fell, Mary did not. Therefore, she had felt the full brunt of the attack from the devil. She had been under even more severe temptations than we have been under, and she was able to reject them. And so, yes, she understands our temptation. She understands uh, what we are, uh, what, who we are facing, and uh, she's there to help us. And she's a compassionate mother, and she has pity on us, provided we constantly call her to our aid. Even though if we fall, and even though we are under weaknesses and under uh, maybe some form of a um, um, addiction of sorts. As long as we're calling on her help and asking her to help us, she will be there to help us and to get us to help us get us back up on our feet and bring us back to her son. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www. Dot .carbono.com Thank you and God bless you.